Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 292, and today's guest is Jonathan Anderson, CEO and co-founder of CanDo. Remember when you needed a full tech team to launch a simple brochureware website? Well, now you know you can just jump on Wix or Squarespace and spin up a well-designed, responsive website in seconds. The rise of the no-code movement has helped increase the pace and usefulness of technology and it has transcended into lots of other applications and use cases. It's a win-win as business users can create applications or make changes to technology on the fly while the engineering team gets to spend their time working on more complex and sophisticated problems. CanDo is right in the strike zone of this no-code movement, as the company is building a better way to activate users and release new features. The simple drag-and-drop UI editor empowers product and customer teams to create UI themselves, saving developer time and trimming technical debt. CanDo is venture-backed by leading VC firms like Two Sigma, CRV, Angular Ventures, and Haystack. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice for improving the activation rate for SaaS products and whether or not those post-activation email campaigns are effective, Jonathan's background story and how his career accelerated while at Insight Squared, plus the details on Way Out, a nonprofit he co-founded, how CanDo came to fruition, and the evolution of the platform to its current state, including sample use cases for product growth teams and its value, the vibe around raising venture capital in the current market and how entrepreneurs need to think about today's market reality, advice on how to have a successful launch on Product Hunt, business ideas from spending one year writing down a new startup idea every single day, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. It's hard to believe that we have almost 300 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. We have built up an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies, and every episode includes lots of great advice to follow as well. So if you haven't checked out our past interviews, go to VentureFizz.com slash podcast for the complete list. Oh, and just one ask, please share the VentureFizz podcast with your friends and colleagues in the industry. I appreciate all of your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, you've been a part of some great companies uh, throughout your career, uh, especially one that you're building right now, Can Do. Uh, but before we get into your background story, I wanted to talk about a recent blog post, or I, th- I guess it was just a post on LinkedIn that I had noticed. And it said mm-hmm. something to the effect that three out of 10 new users actually activate on SaaS products. When I saw that number, I was like, whoa. That's pretty staggering and I'm sure very disappointing for anyone that's running a SaaS company. Uh, but you said the best companies double that rate. So what are the best practices that companies can adopt around activation and onboarding so that they don't fall in that three out of 10 uh, measurement? Yeah, this is actually from a, um, a benchmarking survey um, uh, that Lenny worked on. Um, he writes a phenomenal growth newsletter and I think he had over 500 responses come in from um, actual like product and growth managers who'd measured the activation rate. Um, activation rate is a little bit slippery. It's like basically like how, you know, the classical one is the Facebook, you know, seven, seven friends in 10 days. Yeah. Um, how, how much activity do you have to do on a, on a product to actually 
um, well, to, to get value from it, continue to use it. Um, and so the problem is that every company defines that differently. Um, so it's really hard to say like what exactly that means. Uh, but I think what's really interesting is we have this concept that, you know, almost every new user could be successful, but the reality is actually the vast majority of people are not successful when they activate. Um, and so it was actually really, I think, refreshing, I would say, to have um, the level of honesty that came in through the survey results about just how few um, uh, users actually are successful um, when they first come into your product. Um, and one other thing I think is quite funny is the number one strategy for getting uh, someone to activate is actually so like blindingly obvious. It's uh, just making it easier. It's just taking steps out. It's got nothing to do with adding. It's got nothing to do with better messaging. I mean, those are better messaging, clear steps. Like those are all great um, solutions, but actually the, the number one strategy people use to get their activation rate up is just to take out anything and everything that isn't exactly necessary. Uh, it's about subtraction, not addition, which I thought was such an interesting point um, for how to make um, your users more successful. Well, th that's interesting because uh, I think, and I'm, or I, I blame myself for doing the same thing. You just overcomplicate things. You're just like, well, mm -hmm. the, the user journey needs to be doing this, this, and this, and I need to explain this to them. And and then I like sometimes like uh, make things too um, overwordy and brand things, and I just like you, you make things complicated. And when you boil it down to simplicity, it makes it so much easier. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think one of my favorite. Um, one of our customers, uh, Vidyard, uh, they're a video mm -hmm. hosting provider. Sure. Um, and one of their most successful growth experiments was they used to have this screen that basically said, you know, here are the three ways to download our Chrome extension. There's three different ways to kind of use our product. Um, and all they did was say, actually, there's not three options. There's only one option. You have to download it. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not to use the product. <laughs> and like, that's the kind of thinking that you need to have is how do I, it's not how many ways can I help serve customers? It's um, what are all the, what's the comprehensive way that you can make sure that you get to value? It's if we just take out literally every single step that we can, what is the most direct path uh, to getting to value? And how do we just declutter everything? So it's, that's the only thing in the room. So um, yeah, it's, well, it's a different perspective. What are your thoughts on like kind of the, the email chain afterwards? So you sign up for something like, here's, mm -hmm. here's where, where I, I think about these things. Like you see product, you sign up. Cause you're like, Oh, this is cool. Then you see what it actually does. And you're like, Oh, I thought this was something else. I don't think this is what I need, but then you get that trigger of emails Thanks. every day for the next seven days. Like, Hey, you got to do this next. Hey, like that journey post, like that email chain. Is that something that you think is beneficial? Yeah. So that was actually really interesting. So that was one of the um, eight strategies that they outlined in the, in the uh, newsletter that everyone tries. Uh, it's the first, I think it's where most people's minds go. It's let's improve our email cadence. Uh, the problem with email is that it's actually after the user has left your application by virtue of how it works, right? The whole, it's, a, it's actually a re-engagement measure. It's saying, hey, we failed at activating you in the first session. Now, please come back for the, all these other reasons. Right. Uh, maybe reason one, reason two, reason three. So actually, it's exactly the wrong format for improving activation rates. It's much, 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 much more effective for improving re-engagement rates. Um, and so actually, I think that email, even though we kind of reach for it as the first tool, it's like totally the wrong type of tool if you're trying to get someone to actually use your product the first time they sign in. That is a great, great point. I love that. Cause yeah, it's re-engagement. You've, you've failed. So now you're just trying to get them back. You failed. Back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> it's, right. it's, you're, it's already, you've already lost the battle if you're, if you're starting with email. So well, I think that's helpful um, for founders because then, or marketers or whoever that it's like, okay, you need to think about 
the goal then if it's re-engagement versus you know continuation mm-hmm. of a journey. So that's interesting. All right. Well, let's uh let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? <laughs> uh that's a great, great that's a great question. I grew up in Los Altos, which is in the Bay Area in the uh, tech epicenter of the world. And I had no idea what that meant until I I uh, got a little bit older um, and went, actually, uh, I went to college at, right around there at Stanford. So it was very much in that ecosystem. And I think they put something in the water. It's not fluoride. It's like, hey, you got to go become a tech entrepreneur. And so <laughs> that's kind of what got absorbed into my system through osmosis, I would assume. Um, but no, I mean, as a kid, I was like, uh, uh, I was really, really into, and I think I still am into like uh, fantasy novels. I always had cast myself as like the hero of some strange story. I was a very nerdy kid. And I think that uh, continues with me to this day. <laughs> Uh, I just saw my kind of, uh, my quest is one of, um, starting a company and figuring out how to create value, um, in that world. So you study at Stanford, you studied earth systems. Mm-hmm. So what did, what did uh, that yeah. consist of? Yeah, it was one of these great, like, you know, you haven't picked a major yet and you need to figure out how to combine this, this coursework that you've taken. Um, it's, a, it was a mix of econ and environmental studies, uh, but it was very interdisciplinary. So you had to pick and choose all these great classes. Um, I ended up actually sticking around and doing uh, kind of one of those five-year um, or combined undergrad master's programs in industrial mm-hmm. engineering, because I felt like I needed to get my uh, teeth into more problem sets, uh, <laughs> almost <laughs> to like, uh, I spent enough time in, in the world of um, environmental sciences. And actually, I just to be totally honest, one of my regrets is that I didn't, uh, I actually initially tried to get into environmental studies as, um, I'd say like as my, my full career. Uh, but actually when I graduated back in 2012, they're just, the jobs were not that good for new, for new grads. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I actually floated over to, uh, consulting and then eventually made it to tech, uh, because there were just much better opportunities to kind of, um, there's just more innovative things happening in kind of those spaces. And thankfully, even though I'm no longer in that career set now, I think we're starting to see that actually happen back in the environmental world where like actually a lot of the coolest companies now are clean tech. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I would totally encourage someone to go down the path that I did not tread uh, because I think that's actually some of the most interesting things happening now. So, yeah, no, it is interesting. There's two parallels that I've, I've noticed. It's like when somebody graduates from college, whether it's undergrad or master's, that job market is a, it's has such an impact on that person's Mm -hmm. career coming out of the gate uh, which I'm sure mm-hmm. there's studies out there about what does that mean longer term for somebody's career? Uh, and then second, yeah, clean tech. It's like, I remember when Kleiner Perkins, they, you know, had this massive fund and they were kind of like, you know, betting, doubling mm-hmm. down, but they had missed all these, you know, Ubers and tech companies of the day. Um, but now it's come full circle back to where, you know, they had bet early. And so anyways, little side note there. So you did start at, at, at Bain doing consulting. What types of projects were you working on? Uh, we would call it re- reorganization, but my primary focus was headcount reductions. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I got I got very good at uh, figuring out a, how to what's called zero basing, which is if you take an organization and then reduce it down to its like core essentials and then kind of rebuild the organization. Oh, it's actually a really good reason for having a consultant because they have an outside in kind of perspective on on what would this organization look like if you founded it today um mm-hmm. all of that said that's really brutal work it's it was really hard for me um as kind yeah. of my first job to be in that position and uh i'm not in consulting anymore <laughs> for many reasons but i think that's probably one of them you wake up every morning like all right 
Some people are going to lose their jobs today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we would abstract it. We would say this is the right way. This is like the healthy thing for the organization. But, and that's, I think, true. Uh, and I think actually we're seeing that now in this kind of tech downturn is, as we kind of shed some jobs and, and companies are realizing that how right-sizing can really drive efficiency mm -hmm. um, for the bottom line. But all of that said, it's not the type of work that... Um, it's hard to go back to your to tell your parents, hey, I worked on this great thing today. I figured out how to reduce jobs by 10% without impacting growth. You know, that's yeah. not exactly the thing. It's it's not something you could it's you can hold on to that easily. So all right. So then you did get involved in the tech industry and joined Insight mm -hmm. Squared. How did you get connected mm -hmm. with that company? Um one of the things I learned at Bain was actually um, how important uh, finding a good team is. And I actually went through um, through that network with a former consultant um, to work uh, with Jeremy King, uh, who recruited me really early on. And I think tech startups actually, there's a time when it's too early for a tech, for like a consultant to come in, like an MBA type doesn't really fit. Um, but then as it scales a little bit, um, they become really valuable because they have this very like general skill set. Uh, and so it was nice to kind of come into that, you know, 100 person company phase uh, and kind of be part of that kind of growth story, uh, which is very cool. Um, and I, I ended up running um, professional services for them, which is basically like a, you know, how do we get how do we get our team to support, you know, some of these uh, some of these larger and more uh, challenging customers. That's really the core of it. Very cool. Yeah, great team. Uh, Sam Clemens was on the podcast at one point. Uh, oh so yeah, we have, we have the the full background story of Insight Squared in the archives. Well, I think one philosophy of Sam's, which I really had struggled with, especially working on the customer side, was Sam was as a big subtractor, right? He's always had, what do we take out of the product? What's the core, most minimum essentials that we need to do? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're in customer or professional services or sales, you're always saying, how can I add one more thing to pass this, to like win this deal or keep this customer? Mm -hmm. um, and so that was actually, a, uh, I would say a battle that we had. Uh, but just to come back to that kind of activation anecdote at the beginning, uh, Sam actually was totally right. Like that's the right approach for building the right for, for building a product, even though it comes into conflict uh, as you as you scale the organizations, as you start to work with bigger and, and more different types of organizations. Now, I'm a big advocate of having individuals join high growth tech companies, startups, whatever you want to call it. Uh, because when you see the trajectory of your career and what you accomplished at Insight Squared into a leadership role in a re relatively short amount of time is exactly why I think it's a, a great step for people. Uh, so so how did you end up you know, moving to that at that trajectory of director of professional services? Because according to LinkedIn, you know, it was it was a very short amount of time from business analyst to manager to director. Uh, part of that, that's a great question. I think it's really, really hard to go have someone who has not managed people to give them people to manage. I think that's like a big, big jump for any new, for any person coming in. Um, and so I think a lot of startups are reticent to say, Hey, let's go ahead and give this person a team. And that's correct. That's like the right way. That's the right approach. Um, but I was very clear in my interview process that my aspiration was to be a people manager, uh, and to manage a function. And so I kind of set that as my goal at the beginning and it was like, I'll prove myself out in the first little bit. And then once we kind of have defined what that role is, and what the project looks like, I know I probably won't be that good at it yet, but here's what I really, here's what my goal is. Here's what I want to do. Um, and I think kind of giving your initial manager, um, your exec sponsor, kind of that insight into kind of what motivates you um, as kind of a highly ambitious person <laughs> coming in is really, really, really helpful. Um, and then I guess the next jump is just because organizations grow, they change, they, it evolves uh, in terms of what the demands of the business are. And that's the, that's, I think this is probably your line of thinking is there's no better place to have a good career trajectory than an organization that's kind of experiencing that kind of hyper growth, 
because it means that more and more problems are being unlocked um, all the time. So if you're smart and keep your you know nose to the ground, you can find a really good opportunity at an existing organization. All right. So what'd you do next? Yeah. So um, I ended up working at a company um, launched Darkly. Uh, I was really early on, like one of the first 20 employees. Um, and I, I had kind of in my head come up with this concept of, I want to work for smaller and smaller startups until it's just mine. <laughs> so Inside Squared was like, a, I was at a, I came in at hundred, uh, launched directly at 20 and then kind of founded Can Do from there um, as I guess two, one of two. Um, but the launch directly thing was, you know, at that point I kind of seen a number of different um, types of tech uh, and I was getting more interested in kind of the enterprise um, space um, and kind of wanted to get deeper, closer to developer tooling. Um, and then I uh, met Edith who was, um, well, honestly, one of the few uh, women leaders of, a, of an engineering organization. Uh, and I was just really captivated by pretty much everything she said. And I was like, oh, this, this person's really, really, really smart. Uh, I should figure out what she's working on. And even though I, I couldn't at that point even tell you what a feature flag was, uh, I was like, I need to learn more about this to, to kind of get into it. And that was, I think, part of what got me excited about it was um, uh, realizing that there was a lot I didn't know about a space, but that I could sense that there was something valuable there um, and then trying to uncover it. So, so what is that, a feature management platform? Oh yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's funny. When we started, it, it meant nothing. The, the coin wasn't termed. Uh, the term wasn't coined. Excuse me. Uh, there wasn't a there wasn't a, a name for it. But basically, um, all of these companies were building these homegrown systems um, to manage what are called feature toggles, uh, which basically says, you know, for this type of account, they get access to this feature. So a very simple example of that might be like permissions. Like you're an admin, you get access to the settings page. If you're not an admin, you don't. Um, but the problem with the way that these systems are architected is that um, it gets really, really confusing the hierarchy of controls. So, oh, if you're an admin, but you're also a new user, do you actually get access to the page? And suddenly you have this like very challenging logic that lives in different places for deciding who sees what. Um, and that's kind of, um, it just gets very difficult to manage. And there was a big, big problem, which is about retention. So what would end up happening is that you'd have these extremely senior backend engineers who would know in the depths of the system for how the logic for who should see what works. And then one of them would leave. <laughs> and then you'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> if the system goes down, we have no idea how to roll this back because we really don't understand what is the logic for um, who gets which, you know, who gets access to what. Um, and so it's actually a very, very complicated product, um, but it kind of touches on, I think, a really interesting um, way that technology moves forward, which is how do we productize the things that engineers do um, on a, in most companies, right? And is there a good niche for that? And I just think that's a really compelling idea because basically what you're saying is once an engineering team has solved it at, in one way at one place, um, and then there's another engineering team that's solving it in a relatively similar way in another place, maybe there's an opportunity for a product there. Um, so that engineers can can you know use that um, type of technology, and this is just a really good example of of this type of repetitive problem solving. Facebook had done it, Uber had done it, um, and now you can have it too. Now, before we get into CanDo, um, you there's there's another stop of your journey here. So you you co-founded a nonprofit. So talk about that. Oh yeah, this is um uh, this is probably one of my proudest things that I've ever been a part of. Um, so, uh, way out is a, a, a nonprofit that serves a number of cities, but the core idea is that it 
channels, um, uh, basically gets together a, a group of people to have a, a, a gala, as we call it, um, to raise money for a community center in um, a red state or a place that traditionally does not have great um, access to LGBTQ um, services. Um, and so we actually started following, trying to figure out what we wanted to do following kind of the Trump election, the, the first one, because we just felt kind of um, confused and kind of disenfranchised at that point, to be totally honest. Um, but the whole point of it was like, how do we ensure that the values that we have about, you know, supporting LGBTQ um, uh, community centers could basically be, how do we, how do we, how do we take that? How do we do that? How do we solve that in our own city? And we felt like we lived in San Francisco at the time. We felt like that was pretty well taken care of, but there's so many places in the country that just don't look like that. Um, and so it started as um, an event that uh, Luke Anderson, my husband actually helped do along with a number of other, a number of other teams. Um, and then it kind of grew from there. Now it's a volunteer run organization. It's in serving a number of cities. It's raised over a million dollars for different organizations. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really, it's becoming even more important over time, which is really interesting. Um, and I'm just really proud that now that the, the different teams that are running it in each city have, have really had success with it. So, um, it's really, really nice to see something that you've helped shape at the very early stages, like now take on its own life and be better run and better done. Uh, so yeah, it's been a real point of joy for me. Yeah. Well, I, I, I thought of the same, I'm like, this must be re really gratifying because you founded it, took it to a certain step, but I could tell it was still thriving and new leadership and executive directors and different cities. So it was a organization that, you know, continued to thrive after, you know, you moved on to your next thing. Yeah. And, and it's so fun to go to some of the galas now. I, I live in Los Angeles now and I get to like go visit this one or see the one in New York or see the one in SF and there's new ones popping up all the time. And just to see the, like the, the, <laughs> the level of production of these events, but also like the, the joy that they bring and how much money they raise and, and the new things that they try. And it's just, it's such a nice, it's kind of like coming home and seeing your uh, nieces and nephews growing up and being at another rung higher on the, on the wall and being like, oh, they're becoming people, you know, uh, and that's really, really cool to see. So oh, that's awesome. All right. Let's talk about can do. So how did the company come to fruition? Yeah. So um, part of the story there is that um, one thing that LaunchDarkly did not do was that we'd always had this idea initially of being uh, eventually creating the studio. So the, the basically once you decide who sees what, how do you actually make the different experiment? So how do you actually make the front end um, that says, hey, for an admin, you see this and for a non-admin, you see that. Um, turns out we never needed to do that because we found great product market fit with the backend technology. So we never built the front end part of it. Um, but our idea was always to be a better version of Optimizely. I don't know if anyone remembers that. Remembers that tool? That Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Um, but really for the product teams. And I actually went to... Um, uh, I knew I want to start my own company. So I, I went to um, the, the founders, Edith and John. I said, you know, I think I'm, I'm thinking about maybe starting this as my own company. Um, and then Edith was like, actually, you shouldn't do that because we're going we're gonna to do it and we'll eat your lunch. Uh, John said, well, well, we'll get to it, but it's probably going to be about five years, you know, until we get to it. This was about five years ago. So maybe it's, maybe they're, maybe it's time for them. <laughs> um, but actually both of them came around and were like, uh, hey, you should go do this thing. Uh, and both of them kind of gave us our initial angel checks to kind of get started. Um, it really, really helps that I'm I'm not technical. I can't code, <laughs> so I met my co-founder Michele um, actually through an accelerator um, in London, um, where I'd moved to, and he had a, a super talented uh, growth PM who's um, who's also an engineering lead, 
uh, and he'd um, built part of the backend system already. Um, and so it was actually really nice to kind of team up with him and say, how do we actually kind of create this? Um, what, what ended up becoming can do a, a UX design tool for experimentation. So, um, yeah. So, so what was like the first iteration of the product? Like, cause it seems like it did evolve over time. Yeah, we started initially, our idea was always to help, um, help people improve product adoption. And we first started out the way that we tried to do that was by actually building, um, little videos that would pop up on top of the product as a playlist. Um, <laughs> our idea was there were a couple of a lot of problems with this idea. Uh, number one, most people don't, most companies don't have a, a large video library. Number two, there's something just like as a video pops up over the screen that you can't see the screen at like as a naturally it's just problem. It just doesn't work that well. Uh, it's a cold start problem. And then finally, um, there's already pretty good popover tools. Um, this like kind of tour provider ecosystem. Um, and one thing we realized was that actually we thought it'd be much more valuable to build the actual interface of the product page itself. So much closer to almost like a Wix, um, kind of creating the actual page, uh, but really for product and growth teams. Um, and it took us a long time to kind of zero in on that um, as, as opposed to building on top of the page, like as a pop-up, how do we build the page itself? And how do we dynamically inject the HTML so that it shows up as if it's you're just looking at a normal product page, but of course, um, behind the scenes, there's a product, there's a non-technical team who's dragging and dropping things um, into the page. Um, so that was kind of the big, the big shift for us was from on top to into, if that makes any sense. It does. I mean, I guess that kind of like brings me to the point of the current platform and like, like I'm sure there's multiple use cases of how it can mm -hmm. work, but like, what are the, some of the primary ones just, you know, for examples of context here? Yeah, for sure. So we help you create, if you imagine a web app as like a house, uh, we make furniture for your house. So we make uh, announcement bars and checklists and, uh, you know, sign up pages and um, all these different like things that you can use to basically improve the user experience. Um, the number one thing that we can do, though, is really help you improve your uh, product like growth motion, your PLG motion, uh, particularly if you have a free trial. Um, and the reason this is so important is because that likely means that you have a lot of users that you can test new things on. Um, and also there's a really clear conversion event, you know, do they, or do they not sign up at the end of that experience? Uh, so we've kind of zeroed in on kind of, we'd call it like activation, <laughs> uh, within specifically a kind of a free trial experience is kind of our bread and butter. Um, and we've had some, a lot of success with kind of these product growth teams who have lots and lots of experiments they want to run, uh, but don't have the developer bench to build them all. Um, so we're a really, really good way to kind of help them bring a lot of their uh, B, C, and D ideas into to actually into fruition. Um, and the reason that's so important is that unlike kind of core functionality that you build into your product, um, most growth ideas don't work, right? 80% of growth ideas are just not successful. Um, so it's really, really, really important to make it as easy and as inexpensive as possible to test out an idea to see if it will actually kind of stick, uh, to see if it's kind of going to move that activation rate or not. Um, and that's why I think a lot of these amazing enterprise companies that have great developer teams are willing to integrate a no-code tool like ours because they recognize that we can really dramatically increase the velocity that you can actually try stuff out um, and make it really, really inexpensive to do so because you don't need to be playing telephone with this technical team. So, Yeah, I was thinking that as you were talking. I'm like, yeah, I mean, if you can run these experiments through CanDo instead of taking up time of the development the, the development team to implement it only to realize, oh, that didn't work out. 
And then it's like, you know, so it's like, if you can run these experiments and then double down on the engineering resource time with the ones that are working and making those better. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 yeah you really hit the, the nail on the head. There's, there's kind of two kind of core benefits. One is that if you have an idea that you're not super confident, you think it's a good idea, but you're not totally sure you can whip something up yourself and then test it. Um, and then you can also increase the certainty that whatever your engineering team does work on is going to be successful because you can test an earlier version of what you have there, almost like a prototyping tool, but one that actually gives you data on how things are actually working. Um, so it's actually really nice to kind of see it um, both uh, mean that you can test many, many more ideas and make more progress on the ideas that you're excited to test. Um, so it kind of kind of creates that double um, double impact on your velocity and that flywheel. So what's your like like what's your go to market strategy? Like like do you have like a direct sales force? Like is it your own PLG? Like what, like, how does it work? We are a hybrid motion ourselves. We primarily work with sales, but we also have a, have an open door. Um, so anyone can come in and try our product out for free uh, and see what they can build. Um, and part of that is because we want basically to show people that we, you know, eat our own dog food. Like a lot of our very best things that we create are things that we've tried out on our own users. Um, so like, for example, our onboarding flow is made with can do our activation getting started page made with can do or announcements made with can do um, so that whatever we give to you has been battle tested that we've actually had a chance for um, to use it with our own um, with our own uh, user base. Yeah. Cause you have a whole series of templates. So these are all tested, tried and true. These have been effective. So you're not trying to invent something that you think will be effective. These are things that, you know, are already uh, validated. Yeah, and I think that's a really, really good point. And one thing that we we really, really benefit from is that because it's kind of the same checklist at different customer accounts as well, I can tell you why it will work, right? Um, I think a lot of times when you're first embarking on an activation project and you have a development team, you're kind of starting from your own ideas and also kind of from scratch. You don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, but because our components have been used at many different places. They're a little bit like prefab almost. We know it's gonna work, right? We know it's gonna be effective. There's a, there's a, it's really clear to us like what will make something work or not in most cases because um, the same component, it will look different obviously, but it, it will have been used to kind of, you know, all of our, all across our customer base. Now you've raised capital. So so how much capital have you raised and like what's, you know, the what's next for the company? Uh, yeah, we raised about seven and a half million. Um, and the core of that went into really product engineering. Obviously, we're, we're, we're biting off a big, uh, a big piece of meat, which is the uh, trying to build front end better than your engineering team can, which is a difficult thing to do. Um, but we've done a lot of really, really great work to kind of build out that core studio. Um, and also a lot of the analytics to ensure that we can, it's very clear to us kind of what users are doing and what makes them successful or not. Um, what we're working on next as a team is really the experimentation framework. So making it not just the, uh, hey, I you know I want a checklist, but let's actually like, let's build this as an, like an A-B testing tool, uh, which has always been kind of the dream of CanDo. Uh, and it's why we're, um, yeah, it's, that's why it's why it's next on the roadmap, so. Now, how many employees do you have? And like, what's what's it like working at CanDo, like the culture? <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, yeah, so we have uh, 16 employees uh, and I'd say that we are a super dedicated uh, team. We, we really, I think you're getting, I think especially at, um, at the seed stage, you're still figuring out like kind of what works, uh, which means that you have to think critically, try something, 
uh, take ownership over that and then kind of assess whether or not it's working or not. So I think, I think, uh, I think small teams really, really benefit from having a lot of ownership. And we try to kind of give that to, to everyone uh, that they have kind of a meaty problem to chew on. Um, and then I think one, one nice thing about kind of growing up as a company is you kind of figure out what you're really, what you're supposed to be doing, what you're really good at. Um, and you kind of zero in on what, uh, where you create the most value and for whom. Um, and so I think we're kind of, we're now kind of entering that more focused area, I would say. Um, but that said, I mean, we've tried everything. Like we've done, we were fully remote during COVID. We've done hybrid work in different offices. We've done, mm-hmm. and you have to be co-located. We've done, you know, we've, we've tried many, many different uh, things to see kind of what sticks. Uh, and I think the core of it is, you know, we we really believe in uh, <laughs> teams that that think critically, that are willing to take ownership and work hard. We also believe in not burning out and, you know, have 22 vacation days. Uh, it, it, maybe that's in part because we're half European, um, <laughs> but we try to adopt it on the American side as well. Um, so, yeah. What's uh, like, you know, in, in the current state of the state of the industry, right? There's, you know, there was the, uh, series B crunch, the series A crunch, you know, it just like, it just seems like, you know, funding is uh, a little finicky now, but great companies, great teams, sizable markets will always get funded, right? You know, the valuation may vary, but great companies will get funded. So what's like, what, like what's, what's the, the vibe out there right now? I think entrepreneurs are just, you know, when I go out to raise money, I don't know if you have, or is that something you're going to be doing? But like, what's the general sense that you're hearing out there as a company that's building this category? Yeah, I think I think that the days, I think for C stage companies, you can still build on a dream as long as your dream aligns with what people think of as like a hot area. <laughs> if your dream involves like um, generative AI, like you're probably going to be okay. If your dream involves NFTs, it might be very difficult, right? Uh, so I think there's like a little, I think that's still true. Um, just at our stage, we're now entering the storytelling over, let's get into the actual meat and bones of what you actually do. Who do you create value for? How are they using more of the product or not? Um, how does that actually work? Um, and so I think there's like a little bit of um, this, this storytelling aspect of fundraising has definitely gotten pulled out much faster than I think most of us were planning on. Um, you know, I think your metrics become more and more important. Um, but I still think that it's fundamentally true that investors fall in love with um, you uh, despite your problems, not because that you hit every you know check mark checkbox on the on their criteria um, on their scorecard. So I, I still think that being able to tell a story and show how you're um, understanding what your core market is, uh, how you're getting to the kind of metrics that matter, and then also if you're missing one, you know, what explains it? You know why why aren't you there yet? Um, and so I think that's, that's becoming more important. Um, that said, uh, I, I wouldn't lie to you. It's, it's a difficult time to raise additional capital now. I think everyone's being more thoughtful. Um, and it also impacts, um, to a certain extent, you know, how people buy, right? Um, I didn't have to use to talk to CFOs. Now I have to talk to a lot of CFOs. Uh, it's, you know, it used to be, hey, we improve your user experience. Now it's, hey, uh, we improve your activation rate by 10 to 20%. Uh, let's build a simple model to basically explain if that creates value for you as an organization in terms of revenue. Um, and if not, then you're probably not the right customer for us because, you know, we're not, we're not creating enough value for you. So this won't get through your, your CFO. So I think everyone's getting a little bit more <laughs> tactile, um, and, uh, with, with how they approach it. Um, that said, I'm always happy to talk to entrepreneurs who are in the process of raising it's, it's, uh, there's no one size fits all story. You only need it. You only need one. Yes. At the end. Um, but you're going to hear a lot of no's on the way. So 
That's a great way to put it. You just need one. Yes. And that is so true. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just, I think getting back to basics, you need a product that builds value for the end customer that's willing to spend money to purchase what you're providing. So it's just back to fundamentals. And um, like one of the things that frustrates me is when you see these media reports of venture capital investing, well, they're comparing it to an unrealistic data point of 2022. Mm. We just, that, mm-hmm. that was not the world that is typical. So if you compared it to other years prior to the pandemic, it's more normal, but anyways, there's my rant for today. <laughs> no, it's good. And I think, I think that's a really good point. I think interest rates are, were very low for very long and um, it made a lot of sense to keep putting more and more money into venture, which I mean, thankfully we, we, I mean, I, I definitely benefited from it. Right. Uh, and so I'm, I'm definitely not mad about that. Um, we didn't do one of the monster rounds that didn't make any sense. Um, so I think that's, I think we're in some cases not lucky, but I don't think we kind of what's it called, got so far ahead of our skis that we couldn't you know, get back on the slope, um, just to draw out the metaphor. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of us are readjusted to this new world. And I think that readjustment's really hard when you have a business that you built around you know, really, really easy access to capital with low interest rates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's that's been an interesting um, transition for, for a lot of us. And, um, but I think, you know, smart entrepreneurs will realize they're in a new, a new environment and they'll just, you know, so. Yep, exactly. All right. So you've done a couple launches on product hunt with like, mm-hmm. what, what advice would you have on a successful launch on product hunt? Yeah, we've been very lucky to be in the top five, um, both times that we've maybe every time that we've launched, I think we've done two or three. Um, I was joking with a friend who works to work at Aircom. They would launch on product hunt every month because <laughs> it was a great <laughs> lead source for them, <laughs> which I appreciate. Uh, I think they've, I think they've tightened up the rules a little bit since then. Um, so what is Product Hunt? Product Hunt is a community of product marketers, mostly, uh, who are trying to get trying to get noise for their products. So everyone's kind of in it. And then and I'd say like a number of like tech enthusiasts who are just interested in kind of seeing what's happening. Uh, but the primary audience for Product Hunters are other people who are also trying to make noise for their product. Uh, so <laughs> it's a funny little ecosystem. Um, uh, what makes a product successful on Product Hunt? Um, I think the simplest thing that's really helpful. So trying to really, really distill down, like what is the value that you create? And then having some free-ish version of what you have or something that's very clear to, for users to take a look at is really, really helpful. Um, and then finally, co-opting a large community to basically get you um, to kind of increase your rankings. I think there's a lot of tools now and not a lot of companies that try to um, fit, uh, you say fake the system or try to like push you up. And I'd say, just ignore that stuff. That's not actually useful to you. Uh, your job is not to like have a great product hunt launch. It's to get good users who will give you good feedback um, on your product. Like that's the point of it. Um, and so I think, I think try not to take it too seriously uh, and seeing what value it can create, which is a bunch of new users poking around and checking it out. Um, and if it does go terribly, like, don't worry about it. Like you always have a chance to launch again. So <laughs> it's not the end of the world by any stretch. Um, all right. What, what are some of the biggest lessons learned since running a company? Um, uh, that's a, I think in terms of lessons that I've learned, I think one of the most important ones for me has been don't solve the problem. That's two problems out only solve the problem. That's right in front of your nose. Um, and I think sometimes we refer to this as the hair on fire problem, but I think we talk about it from why customers should buy. Um, I think actually a, a better way to think about it is if you have very limited time in your day, um, you are 
going to be tested as a founder or an early employee in so many ways because you can't be good at everything. Um, you just, and you won't be, it'll, you'll be tested on too many dimensions. Um, so really just trying to think about like, what is the closest problem to your nose in that day? What's the thing that's slowing you down or holding your team back? Um, and try to work on that. It's really, really easy to get sucked into the urgency around a, you know, a bug not working or a customer who didn't call you back or your, you know, whatever the, whatever the thing is that's kind of um, urgent but not as important. But I think trying to be pretty honest about uh, if, we make, if we make some kind of progress on this one hypothesis or this one metric, will it actually make a difference for my business? Um, and I think trying to be like a little bit honest about that is really helpful. And then finding really good advisors who are kind of in a similar boat is also really, really helpful. So if you can join it and uh, an accelerator or have the people in your network that are kind of going through similar things, I think it can really help sense check, you know, where should you spend your time? Because ultimately it's all, that's all that it's all about. Um, so where do you spend your calories? Now hiring, it can be tricky. I mean, you know, the market is a little bit different right now, but in most times mm -hmm. markets competitive to, to hire top talent and um, like, like, what advice would you have on, you know, hiring for your team? Like when would you want to bring in like uh, a recruiter internally or partner up with an external recruiter? Like what's been your philosophy there? Yeah, it's funny. In four years of working on Candy, we've done every configuration possible, you know, we've done external recruiters. Uh, we actually never hired an internal recruiter, but we use our, our VCs one. Um, also done a lot of um, personal recruiting, uh, both for my network and from uh, my teammates' networks. Um, I one I think there's two mistakes that are pretty easy to make. One is to hire too junior because you're looking for someone that's relatively inexpensive that you think can learn, uh, but then not realizing that you maybe you don't know enough about that area of the business, so you can't actually give them the training that they need. I think that's one big challenge. I think the other big challenge is when you hire too early, too senior, and you hire a somebody who expects to be managing a team. Um, per our conversation that we just had about the MBA hire, right? Uh, that's a really tricky one to make early on. Um, so I think trying to basically find the right person. Uh, in terms of their seniority level, who's solved this problem before, uh, uh, but is still relatively hungry. I think that's a really good thing to look for. Um, yeah, I think I think one challenge is kind of getting out ahead of where you are um, or also falling, you know, getting someone who's a little bit too early in their career. Because I think the, the honest truth is that uh, as a new person starting in your career, I do not recommend going to an early stage startup because yes, you will learn on the job, but it's actually really helpful to learn from people that have more experience than you in that area. Um, so I would always say like, oh, fine, go work at a company. You know, for example, we don't hire um, salespeople who don't have closing experience, right? Uh, who don't have two year, two or three years of it, just because it's like it's it's too hard to kind of train someone. Uh, there's great programs for that, um, but but you don't have the bandwidth or the or even the the skill in a startup uh, to provide that. I think you should be honest about that, and honest also with all the people that are you're recruiting as well. All right. So I gathered through your travels, there was one year you spent every day you'd write a new startup idea. Which I thought That's was true, really yeah. cool. Really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't want you to give away the ones that you're like, still like, wow, oh, I think that one has a shot. Right. Like, but what, what were some of the ideas that you're like, oh, that was cool. But man, looking back or what, um, mm -hmm. what were some ideas that actually people have built companies around where you're like, that was my idea. <laughs> yeah, no, this is actually, so yeah. So when I was, I knew I wanted to start a company. I'm one of those people who was that always knew I wanted to start a company. And so I was like, okay, well, for one year, I'll just literally spend one minute a day writing a startup idea down. Um, and this is actually a terrible way to create a startup because the best way to create a startup is to think about 
problems in your life that you have, uh, specifically, usually around work is probably the best thing. And then saying, hey, could I build a product that I would buy? <laughs> um, I would actually, that's by far the best way to do it. Um, how, so the problem with my method of generative idea creation is that you end up with a lot of like, oh, I love podcasts. Like, what if there was a podcast aggregator app that actually was more effective and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so it's funny to then come up with ideas and some of those ideas become things that exist, uh, but you might not be the right person to work on it <laughs> is one problem. Uh, I think that's a, that's a big one. And the second thing is I think it overweights you as a consumer and underweights you as a buyer. Um, so I would really say, like, think about your own experience, specifically your work experience and say, the shortest path to becoming an entrepreneur is think about what you would pay for. <laughs> that does not exist. Um, that's, I mean, that's by far the easiest way to do it. All of that said, uh, ideas that I've had that have come into life that have been kind of fun, um, a programmable thermostat that uses your smartphone. That was before Nest. No way. Uh, I worked on that. Yeah, I worked <laughs> on a... Um, this little app that did like a time tracking. So you could basically um, assess like what, who was doing what, which are now very, are now very popular and kind of creating doomsday scenarios for people <laughs> who are remote. <laughs> uh, I've thought a lot of, it's funny. There's been a number of ideas that I've thought of that now exist, but the truth is that I was either not the right person to work on it. And also I can't claim any credit because I never worked on them or never worked on them enough. Uh, so again, Problems that you have in your own life, in your professional life, that you would pay for. Let's <laughs> stick to that. That's a good prompt. Uh, my wife has one that she's like, Instacart, that was my idea. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. No. Executing on Instacart <laughs> is a whole different operational level of you expertise. Know, and so. I recall a certain, oh God, web, web van. Web van. Was it yeah. Web van? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, yeah. Let's talk about it. So, web van was Instacart. It totally so was. Maybe, I don't know if your wife had an idea for. <laughs> Webvan, uh, but uh, no, I mean not to not to shame your wife's idea, but I'm I'm pretty sure Webvan was Instacart about six it years was. earlier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? timing so. is everything. The operations of Webvan versus like because like, they were building warehouses to do the home delivery. Were, yeah. Was, yeah, that yeah. was crazy. So but, it's yeah. funny to think about how one aspect being different and it just doesn't work right. Like one one slight thing that you change and then the business model just doesn't work in this case it was web van had the capex was way 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 too high for right. the demand and instacart kind of um figured out how to do that in a much more scalable way and also benefited from there already being an existing fleet of drivers who are willing to do that you know um so uh, thanks to uber so maybe it was just a different time in general and consumer behavior was different but also mobile apps existed there were lots of things that were different right so many things um, yeah. but it is yeah but it's yeah. fun to think about, oh, that was my idea. Well, yeah, it was also somebody else's idea, you know? <laughs> oh, totally. Ideas are a dime a dozen. It comes down to execution. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Three apps you can't live without. Oh, yeah. Well, I actually know this quite well because I unfortunately was burgled last week. So I've had to redownload all of my apps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very aware of all the apps that I use and when I use them. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, what am I obsessed with? I love the Notes app. I used to, it was an Evernote fanatic, and I totally believe the Notes app has become totally useful in every possible aspect of my life. Um, I would say if you don't have a password manager, please get one. <laughs> There's nothing holding you back. Uh, Dashlane has been very useful to me. Uh, and then I'm sort of a Slack addict, addict. I can't help it. Um, I use it all the time. Um, and I'll throw one more out there just because we're we're having fun. I really like Fig Jam. I think they've done a really, really good job uh, maybe stealing Miro's market, but um, it's been it's a great way to kind of brainstorm and think of new things to do and kind of share creative, um, creative designs with other people. So I'll throw that one in there as well. All right. How about a podcast or book recommendation? 
yes, uh, this is an old one. I just read a Dance of Anger. It's like a really good book about, um, it's a psychological book around how to basically set up like appropriate boundaries with people uh, and how to actually use anger as an incentive for um, uh, just being able to pay attention to it and not necessarily express it to people, but instead using it to kind of just decide for yourself what what you're comfortable with. Um, so treating it, treating anger not as a just a thing that happens to you or um, something you should suppress, but rather thinking about it as, hey, what's a what's a way to actually recognize that it's in like an early alarm system for your body? Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really good book, especially having just um, read the um, the body keeps the score because it really reminded me, oh, paying attention to these uh, these like um, this feedback loop that you have with your emotional system especially for someone like me who like is kind of divorced from my emotional system and a little bit more of like a rationalist kind of person. Mm-hmm. So it's funny to say like, Oh, actually this is a super, super valuable thing that your body gives you pay attention to it. And then, and then see uh, what you want to change in your life based on, you know, these, this, <laughs> this thing that we I maybe tend to neglect. So. All right. Outside of work, what do you like to do? <laughs> I like to, well, I live in Venice, California, so it's beautiful here most of the time. Uh, I like to be outside. Um, I have a, my pets, my cat, my dog, which are, I am so happy with, uh, and can spend a lot of time with them. And then I run a startup. So what other time are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. True, true, true. Very true. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously all the great work you and the team at Can Do are up to, and obviously all the great advice. Thank you so much. It's been such a blast. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.